Welcome to the Launch Place Podcast, where we discuss how entrepreneurs can raise capital, find support, and launch their business. I'm Tom Snyder. I am excited today to welcome John Ireland into the studio. John, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. You are the founder of NTP Technologies. To start us off, for those who aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about what you do. So NTP Technologies, we use a non-thermal plasma technology to generate a sustainable salt-free nitrate uh, on-site for farmers to be used as a substitute for synthetic fertilizers. And I know that's got some technical terms in it, but uh, we can definitely go over those. I, I love it. Yeah, we're going to dig into all the tech. That's what we're really here to do is learn about technologies, learn about uh, how we're supporting industry. I, I think it's fascinating right now, you know, as we look at uh, IoT and data and technology and automation and all these things, you know, agriculture is very much looking like manufacturing. And, uh, and I'm sure you play into that in, in some, some degree and love to hear that. Before we begin, though, this is an audio broadcast and we like to ask all of our guests to give our audience a visual. So one day, uh, as NTP continues to grow and scale and be successful, there's gonna be a documentary done about your, about your company. You'll have a lead role in that. If you could cast yourself, who would you want to play John Ireland in that future documentary? Well, Tom, we're going right to the top. Uh, Henry Cavell. So right to Superman, right to the to the top of the thing, you know, all the way to, to the top. Hey, look, I used to look like that when I was 20 years younger and had more hair. OK, I'm just letting you know that now I used to be in shape. I used to, you know, actually look pretty good now. Now age is age has done me in a little bit, but uh, I think he'd be a good one, at, le at least for the younger years. I, I, I love it. And, and who's to say that as we have you know, this combination of new healthcare and, and other technologies, as well as, you know, my favorite tool, some of these generative AI, we won't continue to look that way into the future, right? Oh, absolutely. You should see my, uh, my avatar. Hmm, very close. All right. So you're working in this egg space. Uh, let's jump right in. You're, you obviously are looking at, okay, there are traditional ways that, that fertilizers, other things were uh, produced and managed and used, and you're looking to something new. Help us understand what was the maybe the first problem that you recognized that, that you wanted to try and solve? Um, sure. So uh, synthetic fertilizer causes a lot of problems in the world. Uh, I was in the oil and gas industry for about 10, 15 years or so. Um, I understand the process, how it's made. Uh, it uses high temperature, high pressures. It generates a tremendous amount of uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, there are all alternatives out there. Problem is the alternatives tend to come with a lot of uh, bad effects as well. Um, right now, um, the Haber-Bosch process, which is the process used by about 90% of the fertilizer manufacturers to generate ammonia and then eventually generate a fertilizer like a calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate, um, it emits probably about uh, one gigaton of CO2 uh, emissions uh, equivalents per year, which is a tremendous amount. So it, it's, it's a big actor in the marketplace. So we're trying to get that uh, removed as much we can. The other problem is that fertilizer has to be shipped all over the world. So there's huge amounts of transportation shipping costs. I don't know if people noticed, but uh, probably about a year or so ago, especially when the Ukraine-Russia uh, war kind of broke out, the price of fertilizer tripled in a very short period of time. And that had to do with not only supply chain, but also manufacturing. People don't know Ukraine actually has the largest ammonia facility or Haber-Bosch facility in all of Europe, whereas um, 
And, and they also, and Russia exports about 23% of the fertilizer in the world. So with those kind of being locked down a little bit more, prices went up dramatically. Um, so, so there was a lot of issues. Uh, the other problem that happened was uh, in the other parts of Europe, because natural gas is the input to the Haber-Bosch process. Uh, as soon as natural price, gas prices started going up, and it wasn't about the, necessarily the price as much as was availability, people actually started to shut fertilizer plants down because they wanted the, the this was this is the middle of winter, you know, they, they wanted the natural gas for heat more than anything else. So, um, so I, I sort of got interested in, in that um, uh, probably about two years ago, the idea of, uh, I'm a biochemical engineer by, by trade. And uh, I like the way that this process that we're talking about non-thermal technology, uh, plasma technology, uh, actually can play a big role in this with uh, and reduce uh, environmental emissions. So I started working on that. And I think when the fertilizer thing started to explode a little bit more, we noticed that this was a, a real opportune time in order for that to happen. And I can give you a little bit of history on some of the technology if you like. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested to learn a little bit about like how are the constituent uh, ingredients changing? How are the processes changing? You know, where did the technology come from? Sure. So believe it or not, um, uh, there was a, a two guys, uh, Birkeland and Ide. They actually started with plasma technology in uh, sometime around the 1900s, early 1900s. Um, and they actually produced a, a couple of uh, fertilizer facilities uh, using the ionization of air. So we use just electricity and air. And what we do is we ionize the uh, nitrogen and oxygen in the air. It reforms into nitrates, nitrites, and another what we call RONs. And uh, they're actually, the nitrates are what the plants really use. But this happened somewhere around the 1900s. For about 10 years or so, uh, Birkeland I process was being used to generate fertilizer and fertilizer was being distributed. Then around somewhere in the 1910s, 1920s, Haber-Bosch came out with their process to generate ammonia. That was cheap. It was using natural gas as an alternative uh, fuel source, uh, which was, or as the fuel source and the input. And that was um, cheap. Why? Because nobody else was using it for anything else. It was a byproduct of the oil industry. Um, also, back then, electricity was very expensive. There wasn't electricity everywhere like there is today. So the only way Birkeland and I could get enough electricity produced was actually doing it by hydropower. So there was one facility in the Netherlands and another one being built in uh, by Niagara Falls. Uh, it, and then also, and I think the Niagara Falls ones never actually finally got built because of the Haber-Bosch process. Unfortunately, if you look up Haber-Bosch, one of the big things they used uh, this processing for uh, in making ammonia was to make uh, explosives. Uh, TNT comes from ammonia, et cetera. So um, that became really big. So they built all these massive plants during the war, uh, you know, the early World War I, World War II. Then all of a sudden, uh, they didn't need them anymore. So what they do with them, now they're starting to, starting to start make, make more fertilizer. Um, the way fertilizer became really important was because uh, people would throw these, uh, uh, especially nitrogen, uh, uh, nitrogenous phos uh, uh, fertilizers on the ground. And you'd see a plant that would go from maybe, you know, it, it would increase by like 50% in size and yield. They're like, that's awesome. So then they throw more on. Then they keep throwing more on. What they weren't realizing, and this is unintended consequences, was the idea that um, as you throw more and more salt-based fertilizer on the ground, you're destroying the microbe in the soil. So what happens is over time, the soil starts to degrade. And I learned this the other day, your soil, which is a living thing, turns into dirt, which is dead. So definition of dirt is dead soil. 
and uh, definition of and soil is living soil. So the idea of having uh, destroying the soil over time, they didn't really recognize this until um, you know people becoming more important in soil and how soil affects the food that we eat, how it affects the plants that we grow. So there's a lot of changes that are going on. So our technology, believe it or not, we're taking that that Berkeley Eye technology, something similar to that, and we're just bringing it into the 21st century. Why? Because electricity is prevalent everywhere. Um, it's uh, the cost of manufacturing is a lot less than it was back then. We can actually build it on a much smaller scale. Uh, we have things like uh, better power supplies, better technology in terms of managing those power supplies and managing the actual input output of our plasma. So so many things have progressed over the years. Now all of a sudden it's become economical uh, to actually look at our technologies and alternative to synthetic fertilizers. So that's sort of the technology background. So, so I'm interested in, um, you see this happen time and again, where an industry evolves for a particular reason, and then that changes, but that infrastructure gets repurposed, as you described with the, the ammonia plants that were originally used for explosives. Okay, now we have this capacity that's used it for a new industry. Is right. there a risk as we see electrification and renewables come about? that all of the, the, the natural gas facilities will say, well, where's my new industry? And, and despite all the benefits that you have, it'll create additional competition to continue to use natural gas and to use the traditional processes. Sure, so uh, natural gas as an industry is interesting. Um, I'm a big fan of electric vehicles, not because they get great gas mileage and stuff like that, it, really because we're take say here in the US, we take, 300 or say 200 million points of pollution, meaning all the cars on the road, and we turn them electric. Well, now all of a sudden we only maybe have 2000 points of pollution, which are the gas power plants to make electricity, but they are still natural gas power plants. Okay, so a lot of the natural gas will still be used in the power plants, also as heating, um, a lot of houses and stuff run on natural gas, etc. So you'll see a lot of that. Um, I will, I do think though that on the ammonia side, Okay, instead of producing, say, if all of a sudden we do really well and we sort of, Hager Bosch doesn't look so great, they're going to take the ammonia facilities. And because there are people doing what they call green ammonia and converting some of those Haber Bosch processes into electrolysis or into other types using, using other types of renewables to actually power these things. But they're going to look at the ammonia as a high, part of the hydrogen economy. I think our hydrogen economy for hydrogen cars, hydrogen buses, power for hot, from hydrogen is going to start to increase as a renewable and alternative. And ammonia is gonna play a big role in that. Ammonia NH3, it's a great way to transport those hydrogens for use in fuels. So I, I see some of that actually happening as well on the ammonia side. So, um, you know, people always say, ask us the same thing. It's like, well, all of a sudden, you know, you start displacing some of the facilities that are out there or the, the synthetic fertilizer, aren't those synthetic fertilizers just gonna get cheaper and cheaper? And I would argue probably not because the price of natural gas is still gonna go up. You're still gonna see uh, more and more people in the world. We're going from 8 billion to 9 billion people in this world. You gotta feed them somehow. And we say, you know, more people, more food, more fertilizer. Um, but we do wanna have a, a different way that people actually farm. And that's what we're trying to achieve here is not only think about, hey, here's an alternative synthetic fertilizer, but there are other ways. We're, we're big believers in biostimulants. We're big believers in uh, regenerative farming, no-till farming, anything that helps increase the soil's uh, natural health 
will increase our plant production. But then you can't just do all this stuff and then throw synthetic fertilizer on it. That's kind of has counterproductive. Our material, you don't have to worry so much about that because we're not throwing salts down on the ground. Okay, so we're not looking to destroy the internal microbe. We're also trying to move from a practice of throwing all this fertilizer down at the beginning of the season and going into what we call microdosing, which is provide just enough fertilizer for the plant when the plant at the right size uh, of the plant. And there's a thing called in agriculture called the four R's of farming, which is called the right source, the right time, the right product, uh, and in the right dosage. Okay, you get those things right. Now, all of a sudden, you're using tremendously lower amounts of fertilizer and still getting the yields you still need from, from the from the soils itself. It's all fascinating science. Let's talk about the market. You clearly solve uh, and address societal pain points, uh, which are very interesting in terms of, um, you know, they use fossil fuels and et cetera, et cetera you solve agriculture pain points, but some of those are measured on a much larger time horizon, such as the longevity of the soil versus converting it to dirt and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but oftentimes, you know, farmers that have really, really thin margins are just buying things on price. Like how do you fit in, you know, what burden of your product cost needs to be bared by say the farmer versus bared by other industries? And, and what does your business model look like? Sure. And then we work on trying to translate from the much larger scale to the much smaller scale, because ultimately it's who's actually buying our product. Right. Um, you got to remember, though, that uh, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, we're all paying for. OK, so what we're trying to do, is, are we really trying to push it to the farmer to pay for it? Well, then the price of the food goes up. Well, then we're paying for it anyway. OK, so it's a matter of it's, we all pay for it in the end, regardless. So now it's just a matter of who's going to pay for it sort of in that, uh, in our supply chain. Okay. Um, so part of the uh, farmer's pains locally, or they do, a lot of them do care about their soil. They do care about the environment. If there was an alternative, it would be great. Um, organic farmers and organic farming starting to take hold uh, in more and more growing at, at a good rate. Um, it's necessary, especially in, when you get to developing countries who don't have access to things like fertilizer and technology. They use more and more organics. Um, indoor farming is also growing somewhere between 20, 22% per year in terms of its growth. They don't use soil. They use um, kind of materials that uh, and chemicals, you could say, uh, nutrients uh, that are used uh, in a closed loop system. Well, they have other issues uh, in terms of the synthetic fertilizers, for example, uh, and this is very uh, simplified. Uh, a indoor farmer might use something called calcium nitrate. They'll add calcium nitrate to their systems so the plants can actually absorb uh, the nitrates. They need a little bit of calcium, but not much. But as the, as the nitrates start to get used up on a much faster rate than the calcium does, what happens is you throw more calcium nitrate in. Well, what happens is you end up with more and more calcium buildup in the system. And that's not good for the system, not good for the plants. It changes the osmotic pressure uh, of the root system. Then all of a sudden the plants can't absorb as much water. So what happens is guys then have to dump their tables out. And the reason they dump their tables is because they got too much calcium um, accumulation in the tables. So what we're looking at it say, hey, maybe we'll use some calcium nitrate to start off with. But as the nitrate's being used, use our product. We're just putting in nitrates directly into the system. There is no salt, there is no calcium. So you can actually run the system on a much longer time frame without having to dump it because you're not having the accumulation of other molecules. 
The other challenge is that some of the products that they get in terms of fertilizers, you know, when you buy a 15.00 calcium nitrate fertilizer, 15.00 means there's 15% nitrogen. Okay, so what's the other 85%? You're also dumping that into your system as well. So you got to be careful of other contaminants and other issues you might be having with other minerals and other uh, things that are actually being dumped due to your fertilizer um, and your nutrient uh, injections into and dosing into your systems. Okay, so we're solving sort of those couple of points. Um, there's also uh, volatility of price. Okay, that's an issue. I'm going to jump back to that one in a second. But then availability, can you get it? Well, you know, in the US, it's a little different because, you know, when uh, we don't have fertilizer, the price goes up by 300%, you end up paying an extra dollar for your head of lettuce at the store. Third world countries, developing nations, they go hungry. They don't get the fertilizer they need. They don't get the yields in their crop. They don't get to eat. Okay. So it's a much bigger pressing situation in many other parts of the world than, than here in the U.S. So uh, I, I want people to be kind of aware of that, even though today um, we're trying to solve problems for the farmers sort of in the U.S., but it translates to a much bigger issue on a global scale. Um, so the last thing, again, was the, the pricing. So what we're trying to do in terms of pricing, since we have a machine that actually generates the nitrates on site, what we're doing is we're changing the model from a operating cost that I have to buy fertilizer every single year. I don't know what the price is going to be year to year. I don't even necessarily know how much I'm going to necessarily need at any given point in time, depending upon my soil, what I'm growing, et cetera. I'm turning that variable operating cost into a fixed cost, the same way solar did. Right. So electricity, you buy electricity, you, you're dependent upon the utilities in terms of setting their price and you have to pay it. There's not much around it. You know, you have you do can buy some other demand stuff. You know, there's a couple of other ways to get around that. But fundamentally, you're beholden to whatever that price is. Whereas for us, we're doing this where solar solar then converts you to a bunch of solar panels. You have a capital cost, but you amortize that capital cost over 20 years. You basically have a fixed price for electricity. We're doing the same thing. We're taking that operating cost, turning it into a fixed cost. You then have a machine that you can actually pay for over the next 20 years. You produce X number of pounds per year, per machine, per dollar. You get a fixed price for the next 20 years of your fertilizer. Not only that, this fertilizer machine, because it's uh, uh, the size that it, is, that it is, which is probably about the size of a refrigerator, you can put it anywhere in the world, put solar panels on it and have this thing running off the grid for the next 20 years at a fixed price fertilizer. So th those are some of the things we're trying to drive at. And it's, it's not perfect, uh, but there are a lot of people that see this as being an opportunity to do something different than that they've done in the past. You're operating in the US now, uh, Aspire eventually, I'm sure to get to those regions of the world that you described that, that, that have a more acute problem. Uh, but you know, all companies grow in, in scale and early on, you leveraged a an organization uh, up in Virginia called the Launch Place that that offers uh, a contest for earlier stage companies to to pitch their ideas and win some capital and gain some exposure. And you were a winner of of their big launch challenge competition. Talk a little bit about kind of the early days and how those kind of resources you know help your company along the way. Sure. Um. There's there's more and more in the U.S. There's getting uh, more and more resources. Uh, for startup companies. 
A lot of them, though, start at sort of the college and university level. And you're at a college university. There's lots of resources for you. Uh, us guys that have been doing this for 20, 30 years, there's fewer resources because we're not actually in school anymore. Um, because of that, we have to look for other more community-based ones. And the Big Lost Challenge is great. Um, there's a couple of good things about them. One is um, it is a pitch for anybody that's looking to um, kind of highlight their technology. Uh, we talked to them. We went through a little bit of a process to apply. Uh, we ended up pitching with a whole bunch of people on stage. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be uh, the second place winner, which was fabulous for us. Uh, a little bit of capital. Capital doesn't go nearly as far as it used to, but what's really nice is we got a lot of recognition. There were a lot of people out there. Actually, one of the people that was in the audience uh, is actually looking to fund us this year, not 5,000, but more like 200,000. So those connections are really, really important to, to, to start accumulating that network, accumulating that uh, those connectivity to people. The other thing that's nice about the Big Launch Channel is they're actually in Danville. And in Danville, Virginia, they're trying to become a leader in um, CEA. Okay. Um, so because of that, um, they're looking to get as much recognition in that space, right? Which is controlled environment agriculture, basically your indoor farming. So that also helped us a lot as well. And I went back there a couple of weeks ago and talked to some people actually in Danville. They're, they gave a, a conference on biostimulants. Uh, met a whole bunch of people there as well. So it's great that you're get starting to get those networking connections. People think that sometimes, hey, I met somebody who's got some money, they're going to give it to me. It's like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. It takes, even if you meet them and they want to invest, it's going to take you months. And you've got, and you got to develop that relationship. They got to know who you are. Um, you got to start um, somewhere. Big Launch Challenge was a great place for us to start. Yeah, and a wonderful network, very connected to the investor community, both at the Angel and the VC level and, and just a wealth of expertise. Um, I, I do like your comment about, you know, there are a lot of resources in kind of what people think of as the traditional place startups come from, like universities and, and so on. Uh, the reality is that the average tech founder, like the middle of the bell curve for a successful first time tech founder uh, is like 46 years old. It's people that have some industry experience. They understand some problems in the market. Um, but, the, you know, they have a network. I think that's part of their advantage. Some of them have maybe some savings that they can, you know, at least get a roof over their head while they're running their company. But um, but there aren't necessarily as many dedicated programs. And, and the Launch Place is one of the fantastic ones that, that's out there. Yeah. And I'm actually finding that um, there's also uh, other accelerators. And I know they, they provide another pro a program like that as well. Um, that a lot of the money guys, the venture capital guys, et cetera, what they're doing is they're going to these incubators, these accelerators, these types of groups that have programs to sort of look for their next investments. And the reason they're doing that is because if you go through a program like that, you've, you've kind of learned to talk the language. You've kind of learned to, you're sort of pre-vetted a little bit. Um, a lot of times they're pushing you to do customer discovery and these incubation and accelerated programs require you to do that. So, so they're getting what they need uh, through you, by you going through these programs. So I think it's important to kind of align yourself. And there are some that are local. Uh, there are some that are industry-based. Uh, there are some that are much more international. Uh, we're fortunate enough that uh, we were accepted to the uh, Grow Impact Accelerator, uh, which is funded by AgFunder. Uh, there were over 600 international applicants and we were one of the top 10. I actually spent a week in Singapore and went through a lot of boot camps. Uh, unfortunately, the boot camps were between one and four in the morning, but that's okay. Uh, I don't sleep much anyway. You know, as entrepreneurs, we work whenever we need to work. Um, 
So anyway, so uh, being part of those is really important because that also helps your network. It's it's the, you know, he told two people, she told two people, she told, and all of a sudden your network just expands dramatically. And that's that's what you really want to do as early on as possible. Yeah, it, it truly is. The, the more folks you know, the better chance you'll find partners, that you'll find customers, you'll find collaborators, you'll find talent, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, yeah, really, really wise words. Glad to see you're, you're on the right trajectory as you grow. Um, as we start to wrap up here, what are you most excited about kind of as you look forward? Um, well, I'm, I'm excited that a lot of people are thinking about um, how to do some of these more traditional um, industries in a different way. Okay. You know, some of them are really out there. Tech's, tech's really great, you know, SaaS programs, uh, you know, you got applications and a lot of people are, have invested in tons of applications as a kind of quick dollars, but something like ag takes time. And I'm glad to see that there's a lot more people interested in putting in the work, taking the time. They know it's going to take a while for it to expand and grow, but they're willing to actually do that. And I think that's really important because, you know, you can develop a new app tomorrow if you really wanted to, right? And maybe make a whole ton of money on it. But, you know, you still need to eat. Uh, I'm sorry, your app's not going to make the food for you, at least not yet, right? Uh, at some point in time, you never know. But uh, today, you know, we need to have a lot of these basic industries and things we sort of take for granted that are showing up at our doorstep that are that are happening. Can't be done by apps. They actually have to be done by hardware, by interfaces between software and hardware, and people actually pushing markets. Um, you know, I, I'm not so sure the agriculture industry would have changed unless people are in there kind of pushing them to change and showing them why they should actually change, which is great. We're actually seeing some larger companies in the in the space also taking notice, which I think is really important. All great stuff. I'm certain that there are listeners that are out there that may be interested to learn more or maybe have some way that they can help or a door that they can unlock. Uh, if folks wanted to reach out, what's the best way to either contact you or NTP Technologies? Um, the best way is probably just through email. And uh, my email is jireland, like the country, uh, at ntptechnologies.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit of the future of what uh, industrial agriculture is going to look like. Love the idea that we're going to do it in a smarter way in the future. We're not going to kill our soil and turn it into dirt. <laughs> we're going to do all the, all the good things. And uh, I look forward to having you back on the program soon to, to learn about the progress that you've made. I really appreciate being here. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Launch Place podcast. The big launch challenge will take place on October 5th at the NC Biotechnology Center in Durham, North Carolina. This annual event offers startups valuable business networking and capital opportunities. If you are looking to turn your startup dreams into a reality, then apply by September 1st to pitch your business.